You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When Mets assistant GM Ian Levin was four years old, there was a song sung by Bette Midler that was both popular and super annoying. The Wind Beneath My Wings was actually from a tear-jerking movie called Beaches. That's right, Beaches. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to say, that's right, Beaches. Uh, I doubt that Ian and Brent Alderson and Ben Zosmer and all of Billy Epler's cabinet walks around humming that tune. But Ian really is the wind beneath the wings of the guys you hear much more about. Sandy Alderson at the top, Billy Epler, the new GM. There's a lot that goes into putting a big league team and minor league organization together. And a guy who's seen it all and done it all will talk to us today about how that works and how you might make a climb like that yourself someday if you're so inclined. Then again, maybe you want to be the next Bette Midler. I don't judge. I really don't. Mets in the morning. Mets in the morning. Oh, yeah. Mets in the morning. Gonna tell you what the Mets are doing while your coffee is brewing now. Here's Josh Lewin. It must have been cold there in my shadow to never have sunlight on your face. You know... I can fly higher than an eagle. It's true. For you are the wind beneath my wings. Josh Lewin with you. No more Bette Midler references until at least this weekend, I promise. The Mets now a week away from the real thing, and Buck Walters' team continues to come together. Ian Levin will join us on today's pod. More from the Bill James Handbook today as we go way deep. I mean, Grand Canyon deep with statistical nuggetry. But there's still a lot of focus on the new manager, who of course is not new to baseball. This is Buck Showalter's 21st spring training as a big league manager. I wasn't physically at camp to listen to Buck during the pregame last night, so no sound for you today. But uh, note that it was indeed another night spring training game, and that is Buck's thumb on the scale. He says you want to prepare the players for the season. Well, they're not getting up at 7 a.m., so let's not play our exhibition games at night. He's He's right. And he's also big on this one, which players love. He says meetings should never run for more than 15 minutes. There's actually a timer on the amphitheater wall at the complex, and everyone also, sooner or later, gets one-on-one FaceTime with their new boss, which is something he's big on, too. And Buck even has a rule about that. Any productive one-on-one should not last more than two or three minutes. He says anything less, the player thinks he don't care. Anything more, the player kind of thinks he's setting the agenda now, and he can just yammer away about whatever anytime and if you want to kind of find that sweet spot it's about three minutes says buck so uh, he's not big on inspirational quotes hanging around the, the spring training complex he he said i remember looking at him when i first came down to port st Lucie and said to myself those are all really nice but how do they actually make my players play better he wants one sign up there post up and play better so you know there's a thing about the buck stops here that's about right with Buck. And call it an obsessive streak if you want to. That's all documented history. But he can be progressive, too. A clubhouse music, as long as it's pre-approved, it's whatever the players want to play. Facial hair is fine. Hair below the collar is okay, as long as the hair doesn't cover the number on the back of your jersey. The biggest thing he's talked about this spring, and it's so true, it's just critical to keep everybody healthy. Period. I mean, Buck's been doing this for a while. He knows the drill. 
but he's right. The injury card and underachieving cards, those have been the ones that the, the Tarot lady keeps pulling out of the pile. You go back to 2016, and you know, the Mets have made the World Series the year before. But since then, their winning percentage is 486. That's 13th worst in Major League Baseball. Only the Mets and Angels have spent $900 million or more on payroll in that time and don't have a 500 record to show for it. The data we get from a sport track is uh, Mets players have spent 9,053 days on the injured list since 2016. That's cost the team about $267 million. Only the Yankees have had lousier luck with their stars staying healthy than the Mets have. Although the Yankees at least have five playoff appearances to show during that time. The Mets have one. That was a wild card one-game loss six years ago. You go to four years ago, 2018, the Mets in that year alone, spent $70 million on injured players, from Ioana Cespedes to Noah Syndergaard to David Wright to uh, A.J. Ramos. They were 77 and 85. It's exactly what they were last year, too. And you go to 2020, the Mets won six fewer games than wins above replacement said they should have won. That was only a 60-game season. They finished 26 and 34. They should have been 32 and 28 with the roster that actually got out there. And it's just kind of time. I mean, Buck is just big on this, that let's get the injury excuses out of the way and let's find a way to move on from the, the sad Zachary that sometimes defines his franchise. Keeping your aces and home run hitters healthy is job one. As Jerry Seinfeld famously said to the rental car company in that one episode, you know how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation, which is really the most important part. In football, they say you can't help the club from the tub. And that's kind of where Buck is with all this in baseball. So from the skipper to the front office now, they, they call him Ian Levin, quite rightly. Been in the organization since he was an intern coming out of Seton Hall. He's worked his way up the ladder. I mean, really worked. And now he's part of the ind- indispensable triumvirate of assistant Mets GMs. We introduced you to Ben Zosmer recently. That's the newest hire. Bryn Alderson, the son of Sandy, is on our list of those you will meet later on. Let's get to know the backstory of Ian Levin here today. Super smart, super nice guy, but also someone who literally knows every nook and cranny and crevice of the organization because he's done it all. And now, yeah, he is the wind beneath the wings of Sandy Alderson and Billy Epler, along with guys like John Rico as well. So, hope you enjoy the sit-down we did at a picnic table under the grandstand at Clover Park. Talking climbing the ladder with, with the great Ian Levin, and let's go back to when you're getting out of college. Seton Hall guy, you do work for your MBA at Binghamton, not actually in Binghamton, but with uh, a SUNY school of some renown. And uh, I'm curious, when you're in your very early 20s, what are you thinking is the ceiling? Where did you want to go? I don't know. I don't know where it was going to take me. I just knew that I wanted to play. I wanted to work in baseball. I realized I wasn't going to be able to play, and baseball is a sport that I love. So what can, what's the next best thing is working in it. And uh, I found every which way I could to find an opportunity with the Mets. was lucky enough to get an opportunity with the Mets and get to live out my dream on this side of it since I can't be uh, actually on the field. So I'm fascinated by how that all gets going. I mean, was it a cattle call and you just won the lottery or did you know somebody or how, how do you get that first job? No, you know, it's definitely right place, right time, but you have to put yourself in a position to be successful. So uh, the Mets were looking for interns and sent a message over to our career center at Seton Hall looking for PR interns and I, I decided to take a chance. I applied for it and got lucky and got that 
Uh, met some met some and worked for some great people. Uh, Jay Harwitz, Ethan Wilson, Shannon Ford at the time, and uh, spent a good year with them. And then met some people on the baseball side and continued to you know get lucky in a, in a right right time at that point. So, what is uh, an intern in the media relations department? I guess that was '05. Trying to five, think yep. of so, did you get to know the players, or are you just making copies of stuff? Yeah, not really. I was in you know, around the clubhouse a little bit just to deliver our our daily clips, our stat packs. I'm, I'm working with them at the media gate, uh, making sure everything is, is functional. So uh, it was just an opportunity to get get familiar with the organization and get familiar with the people, and I, I loved every minute of it. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So the next step, because like you say, you want to be not so much just checking media credentials for a living. You, you want to go, really get into the teeth of baseball. How did it come to pass that you get the next step into ops? So I think the theme here and the theme for me like throughout my career is do the job you're currently doing as good as you can possibly do it and not worry about what comes next. Like, yeah, I wanted to be on the baseball side, but I knew... Like I'm currently an intern in PR. Like let me focus on that, and I did that job really well. And Shannon and Ethan and Jay, they knew where I wanted to end up, so they made a recommendation for me. And there happened to be an internship available in baseball next year that I was able to take. But I wouldn't have been able to get that if they didn't recommend me for it, and if I didn't work hard and show them that I was capable of handling it. On to scouting, coordinator of amateur scouting. You did that for six years. So who were the guys that you worked with that kind of molded you and, and shaped you into a, re- a really good addition of that? Yeah, there's so many people. I mean, that's the beauty of working in baseball or really anywhere is you get to learn and work with so many different types of people. So my you know, Rudy Tarasas was our first scouting director, but then ultimately you know, Chad McDonald, Tommy Tanis, but you know, those were the scouting directors at the time. Um, I was lucky enough to meet and work for Paul DePodesta when he came over, and a number of our other scouts who I've known for years. So we have some so many great ones. I don't want to you know leave people out, but you know they're they're currently with us, like Steve Barningham yep. and Doug Thurman and, and Mark Tremuda and a number of others. So just an opportunity to learn and grow and work with different people and kind of work in different capacities for help prepare me for whatever came next. And it's funny because I think there's a misconception out there. You know, people think the Mets just discovered analytics like a minute ago. And that's really not true. You were actually the manager of baseball analytics for a couple of years. Obviously, that whole game has changed a lot. The depth of the ocean has changed a lot. But what was it like to be in charge of that? It's That's something that's always driven me. I was always focused on, you know, analytics and performance metrics. I felt like that came a little more naturally to me. So, uh for me, it was finding ways to help advance the ball for our organization. We were always focused on it. I was helping run our analytics for the amateur draft when I was working in amateur scouting. So it was always something that I did, and we wanted to be a part of that. And for me, it was just finding a different way to evaluate and develop players statistically and add value to uh, what our what our great coaches and other executives do. So it's just a piece of the puzzle, and I was glad to be able to be a part of that. So walk me through the next piece of your resume because you went from director of minor league operations to director of player development and to a neophyte like me kind of sounds like almost the same job, but I know it's not. Is one more administrative than the other, or what, what's the difference? Yeah, different teams will break it up differently. So at least within our organization at, at the time, it was minor league ops is more running the day-to-day of the minor league system, so making sure rosters and transactions were set up properly, managing the player personnel and the, and the staff. And then when I was director of player development, it was shifted a little bit more of philosophical mm-hmm. um, 
making sure our approach to development and coordination with our performance department, et cetera, were all lined up. So uh, the two work hand-in-hand together, minor league ops and director of player development, but at least, again, in our organization, it's a slightly different capacity. So then you go to the one that, to me, looks like the best on an embossed business card, which is Senior Director of Baseball Operations. And I'm just curious as to how much more work fell on your desk when you're that job. That one is like jack of all trades kind of get involved a little yeah. bit of everywhere you know in, in the role in the role as it was defined at the time i was handling our transactions and rosters and things like that at the major league level so it was kind of like the minor league ops job now for the right, major league right. team uh, but also then getting involved with our our clubhouse operations our travel and coordination with other departments you know, i was kind of the linchpin in some ways making sure our different departments were talking to each other so that's kind of an all-encompassing job while maintaining focus on the major league roster so finally you land at least for now at uh, assistant general manager, which you've been doing since last July. So I'm curious on this piece, what what is the, the distribution? Because there's now a handful of assistants. Is it everybody's got a silo or is it completely collaborative and you're all doing everything together? How does that work? Yeah, I'm happy to be working with like such great people. You mentioned other assistant GMs and you know, Ben and, and Bryn. Like, I think we work, work really well as a team and, and amongst others too. There's other people that are involved in the process, but to me, it's each one of us brings a little bit of a different specialty to it mm-hmm. um, from our background, but we're all involved in each of the processes because to, to us, like, if this is not a siloed organization, we don't want it to be where one part is not talking to the other. Like, you can't make a great decision, you can't set up a great process without information from everybody involved in the process. They're all pieces of a decision. So, having that con- connectivity to, to everyone really helps us optimize what we're trying to do. So let's wrap with this because now that you are an assistant general manager and you're in on everything, which has got to be so cool, uh, take me through, I'm just going to do a total hypothetical. Let's say that there is a player that you're interested in as an organization. I'm just going to call him Player X, and he's available in trade. So who says what to whom? What, what is it? Everybody's on a speakerphone, on a Zoom call. Who's got the germ of the idea? Who runs with it? How does that all go? It, it could be anyone. And, you know, since, since Billy's come, come in, he's been exceptionally collaborative. Like, that's a lot of people like to say collaboration or coordination. He lives it. He really does. And it's not just like a catch. No, yeah. I, I've, I've been extremely impressed and happy with how collaborative he is a part of everything. So anyone could bring up an idea or talk about something and then we've got different methods of communication that we'll use whether it's electronic or or you know over zoom or in person depending on where we are at the time and talk through everything to the greatest extent possible so he really does a great job quarterbacking that and making everyone feel like they're a part of the process and actually actually being a part of the process and uh, being able to bring up an idea talk about anything um it's it's a really like great environment to work in and I guess just, I sort of got the final one now. Just, just kind of uh, on a tangent off of that, I'm, I'm thinking about like the trade deadline. Let's say you've got six different player X's in mind and in play. Do you get delegated? Like, okay, you work with this team. Uh, Britt, you work with that team. Or, or we're not even at that point yet. It, well, we haven't looked through it yet, right, with uh, with Billy coming in. But the, the, you know, the recent transaction periods kind of give us some indication. Like, he... I'm, I feel comfortable that we have the ability to connect to a bunch of different teams if need be. So depending on the circumstances, maybe it, it goes through Billy, maybe it goes through one of us, depending on the players involved. Like we're all out there trying to like 
get the information so we can collectively make the best decision we can for the team. Like that's what it comes down to. It's like it's making good decisions, but the only way you make good decisions is by having good information. So we need to collect as much information as possible. I, I love the direction that you guys have right now. You've set your coordinates and you're and you're going. So hey, appreciate you, buddy. Congrats on everything. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me. Very cool of Ian Levin to make time. Hope you enjoyed that chat. And we'll hear from Bryn Alderson before the season begins, from Billy Epler as well. Get you some insight on all the big brains in that Mets front office, and there are indeed several. In a moment, back to our crawl through the primordial ooze of Bill James's statistical handbook. Some of the things I highlighted in this 600-page, 20-ounce tome I've been lugging around in my luggage all month. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. All right, let's see how much of the statistical forest fire I can allow to burn before it rages out of control. Yesterday's podcast was pretty Mets 101-y on this subject, but I wanted to go a little deeper on defense today, including Bill James's thoughts about versatility and thoughts about the shift. The value of a player who can play all over the field, and whether it's Luis Guillorme, I mean, that's a good example for the Mets. Back in the day, a Tony Phillips, a guy like that. I'm big on those guys, have always been big on those guys. And Bill writes an essay about, in 1967, how Carl Yastrzemski won the, the Triple Crown in the AL, was nearly a unanimous MVP selection except for one vote. And that voter was clobbered for picking Cesar Tovar of the Twins. It was a Minneapolis sports writer, a guy named Max Nichols, who did that. But what he advocated was there was great value in a player who can cover the weaknesses that pop up all over the field. Tovar had started that year as a twin center fielder, but Rod Carew got hurt in July, so Tovar went and played second base. When Carew came back, Tovar moved to third base because Rich Rollins was having a bad year. Tovar wound up playing 70 games at third, 64 in center, 36 at second, 10 in left, 9 at shortstop, 6 in right. And the Twins wound up winning 91 games, Red Sox won 92. Nichols's point was that the Twins' defense would have collapsed without Tovar, and they wouldn't have been within a mile of the pennant race, and the Red Sox would have been just fine with or without Yaz, even though he was certainly their best player. So you look these days at a Chris Taylor, a Josh Rojas, a Chris Bryant, guys that really can play everywhere. Ben Zobrist was that guy a while ago. Uh, Chris Bryant last year played 12 games at first, 55 at third, moonlighted once at shortstop, played all three outfield positions extensively. I love guys like that. Bill talks about pitch framing. 
And sneaking pitchers into the strike zone before the umpire can realize that their passports are not in order, that is a huge skill set. Tomas Nito was one of the best statistically last year, seventh in all of baseball, matter of fact. He stole an estimated 42 strikes, saving five runs. Max Stasi, Mike Zanino, Jacob Stallings were among the best. It's interesting that uh, two former Mets ranked high up as well, Travis Darno and Kevin Ploiecki. If there are robot umps, then Tomas Nito might not have the best part of his job anymore. We'll talk more about that on a different podcast. Want to finish with shifting here. Shifts were down slightly last year to just under 60,000 times, but as recently as 2017, that number was only 26,000 times. In 2011, that number was around 2,000 times. So the shift is a big deal. And if you look at batting averages on grounders or short line drives, shift candidates get hurt by about 28 batting average points. The guys that you know are going to get shifted on. Non-shift candidates get hurt by only one point. So it's basically you shift against the guys who always pull, period, end of story. You don't do it against everybody. The Mets ended up shifting against the appropriate players a lot last year, but they also statistically here shifted against the wrong players way too much is what the numbers show. They shifted way more often last year than they had in 2020. If you prorate for the short schedule of 2020, the Mets would have shifted about 1,350 times in 2020. They were up to 2,500 last year. The Braves had two of the top four batters in terms of how often they're shifted against. That was Freddie Freeman and Ozzy Albies. The only player in baseball who was shifted against 92% of the time was Matt Olson. And now he's a Brave instead of Freeman. 92% is like a David Ortiz number. The Mets last year lost 180 hits to the shift. They gained 138, so they lost 42 hits because the other team was doing things correctly. In terms of pitching, the Mets were a plus 31, so they saved themselves there. The Red Sox were the only team in baseball who were hurt by the shift when they actually did it. They, they gave back 11 hits, so they just would have left well enough alone. Alex Cora, what are you doing? Maybe we'll ask Joey Cora, his brother, who is now the Mets' third base coach. All right. That's all we have time for on Bill James today. We'll try to get in some more tomorrow, April Fool's Day. I don't know what we're going to do for that. Uh, Mets in the Morning House Band, thank you very much. You guys are awesome. On keyboards, outfielder Travis Tyrone. Zapping to base, outfielder Terry Blocker. The horn section, our good friend Rob Barajas. And on drums, another catcher from back in the day, Omir Santos. This is Josh Lewin. Appreciate you very much. Have a happy rest of your day. Let's go Mets.